Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Good morning. It is very nice to be with you all again. It's been a full year since the last time we were here, and it's always a delight for us to come down and spend some time with some dear friends, which you all are. And so we're, we're thankful to the Lord for that opportunity. It's always good to see my brother Ed. Every year we come down and we get to see that face again, and all we're seeing now is the eyes, but I know underneath there is a smile still. <laughs> so we're thankful to the Lord for that as well. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> pull it up, pull it up. Otherwise, Grant will be on me. <laughs> Open your Bibles, please, with me this morning to 1 Peter. Now, we're going to um, use this first session as kind of the introduction to this series we want to, uh, want to give to you this, this year. So we're going to read just the first three verses now, and then we'll have an introduction to what this series is going to be. And then we're going to, uh, in the next section, we'll read the first 16 verses. But for this section, which ends at what, quarter till? Okay. We'll try and do an introduction. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Read just the first two verses. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your guidance, the guidance of your Spirit. As we look at your word once again, we ask your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we would all agree that the Old Testament scriptures lay for us the pilings, if you will, or lay for us the foundation on which the New Testament scriptures are built. And we would all, I think, quickly agree with that, that the Old Testament lays the foundations through all the narratives of the Old Testament, through the biographies that we read in the Old Testament, to the uh, uh, prophecy of the Old Testament, through the beautiful poetry that you find in, in the poetic books as well as in the, in the prophets, all of that is laying a foundation for what is going to be unveiled and revealed in, in the New Testament. And all of us here in this room would likely agree in the progressive revelation of God. That God has progressively, through the Old Testament Scripture, revealed Himself to man. Little by little, He began to show Himself to man. Sometimes, in, that, in those early chapters of the uh, accounts, He takes some great eschatological leaps ahead. But we don't discover those things and the understanding of those till we get to the New Testament. Or do you see the, the writings of the prophets? For example, the seed of the woman. That takes a huge leap into the future 
of what God was already planning to do, which God had already from the foundation, before the foundation of the world, planned and purposed. And yet we find it in the opening chapters of the book of, of Genesis in, in chapter 3. It also, the Old Testament also give us all those beautiful types and those beautiful similes, those beautiful pictures in the Old Testament of those things which would be come much clearer to us when we move into the New Testament. And this is nothing new to you. You've done this and studied this all of your lives as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, we have those wonderful pictures of Melchizedek that are more elaborately displayed to us when we get to the, to the book of Hebrews. Although we see it again in a couple of other places in the Psalms. And as we go forward, we see in the Scripture the offering of Isaac. And we see in that it's such wonderful and beautiful pictures of something that was yet to come, that was yet to be developed, understood in more clarity. As, as time went by, we see the sacrificial system of the Old Testament in all the, all the offerings and sacrifices that were made and then were codified into the law and the distinction of all of those sacrifices were made as the law was laid down. And then we see as well in Leviticus a codification, if you will, of even the, the feast days and of the Passover and of all the different feast days. And then we can now look, look back on those and see through the lens of the New Testament their meaning and their purpose and, their, and the pictures that the antitype in, in Christ has fulfilled. And so as we go through the scripture, we're able to, from the Old Testament, see what God had purposed and God had planned. Now, in his prophetic messages throughout the Old Testament, it gives hope of an anointed one that was coming, of a Messiah that would come and would redeem the people of Israel. And they looked forward to the coming of Messiah. You see through in Isaiah 53, what must have baffled them early on of a Messiah, a deliverer who would come and yet would be rejected and crucified, although the term crucified certainly isn't used. It's certainly in Psalm 22 and in Isaiah 53, we see one who would come and die for the sins of the people. And so the Old Testament is laying out for us, little by little, precept by precept, the great things that God is doing and would do for not only the seed of Abraham, but for the world at large. For anyone and all who would believe. We remember in this, we looked at, I think last year it was, we looked at the great servant songs that you find in Isaiah, which were picturing the Lord Jesus. Pictures of the Lord Jesus found in the Old Testament Scripture. And the purpose and plan of God was being revealed. We remember, and oftentimes we hear the speaking brethren who will quote this from Augustine, where we see the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, right? And the old in the new revealed. And we know that to be true from our own personal study of the Word of God. And we would also acknowledge when the New Testament was written, both the Gospels, 
the Acts, the Epistles, they drew upon the Scripture. When they wanted to solidify their points, if they needed a proof text, if they needed something to found, put the foundation of what they were speaking on, they would go to the Scripture. And of course, the Scripture was the Old Testament Scripture. They would go back to the Old Testament Scripture. According to the Scripture, Jesus was taken, put to death, buried, and rose again according to the Scripture. And they would go back to the Old Testament as Philip did and show unto them the things concerning the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Those disciples who were so discouraged. They thought they had found the Messiah. They thought He had come. Why are you so discouraged? Are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened these days? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he proclaimed unto them in all the Scripture the things concerning himself. And he didn't read the epistles of Paul. He went back to the Old Testament and clearly showed to him the plan and purpose of God for him. So it is important to us. I would say it's imperative that we, as we study the New Testament, both in the Gospels and in the Epistles and, and in Revelation and Acts as well, as we study those that we recognize and see the context of the portions that they allude to. Because the New Testament writers will continually allude to Old Testament Scripture. They will continually quote from Old Testament Scripture. And it behooves us to go back to where those quotes come from in order that we can see the context that clearly the writer knew when he pulled those verses out of the context to put them in as proof texts in his, in his epistle or in the writing of his a gospel. He understood where they came from. I'm convinced of that. Because they did not use the Word of God flippantly, did they? They reverenced it. And I think as they went back, and under inspiration of the Spirit of God, they were caused to write and quote and allude to the Old Testament, that in their mind was fresh the context of all that was surrounding the verses and the allusions that they made. And notice I'm saying allusion, not illusion, huh? It is an allusion back to the Old Testament Scripture. They did, the New Testament writers and the ones who heard the, the, the message being preached by the apostles in those early days, did what the Bereans did. They heard the word and they said, that really sounds good. That gospel really sounds good. Let's go to the Scripture and see if it's so. And so they would go back to the Old Testament and see if the things that the apostles were teaching and writing were so. And so they would go back to the Old Testament. So Peter 
in his writing, what we want to do, what, we, what our goal is to accomplish in these sessions together with you, and we have six because we have these, look at that, I'm not going to get through the introduction, but we have, um, we have these sections that are dealing with what I, want to, what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. I want to, I looked at the clock and I got all nervous. In our sessions together, we want to go and see in Using Peter as an example, I used the book of Hebrews when I was doing this the last time, and now I've been, I've been kind of living in 1 Peter for, for months, and Joyce will attest to that because every message I come up with, and, and they're always different, they're always new, but they're, oh, they're coming out of the same context. But what I want to show to you is how Peter... In all the many allusions that he makes to the Old Testament and the quotes that he makes, I want to show the context from where they come from in order that we, it will enlighten us or in, encourage us to see the full picture of what was in the mind of the writer when he penned those quotes under inspiration of the Spirit of God, when he made those allusions to the Old Testament Scripture. So we want to spend our time this month looking at those things. Now, there are always some hermeneutical challenges when you do these kind of studies. You won't have to deal with the hermeneutical challenges. I had to deal with the hermeneutical challenges. I will just try to present to you the things that I found and learned. For example, one of the hermeneutical challenges that you face is the recognition that most of the quotes in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and in the, um, in the epistles are all coming from the Septuagint. They're all coming from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which, which was done in about the 3rd century BCE, or the 3rd century before the Common Era. So it was... It was, it was an Old Testament trans, a translation into Greek of the Old Testament. And just about all of the writers quote from it. So that when we are reading in our English Bibles those quotes, we are actually reading a translation of a translation. And what happens is, the hermeneutical challenges involved are now going back to see in the Old Testament Scripture, now taken in Greek form, what indeed was the meaning and why they chose certain words and certain things. To, because what happens is you get forward, now you get into the New Testament, and the quotes sometimes are not exactly as they're found. Sometimes the words change. Sometimes the tenses of the verbs change. The moods of the verbs change. There are changes that take place under inspiration of God in order to take those Old Testament passages and make them applicable in the New Testament context. You understand what I'm trying to say? Does it make sense, or am I just babbling on? I, hopefully that makes sense to you. So here is the question, and I'll, I'll end this introduction with this, and we may have to pick up a couple of things as we go along. The question that you must face initially is, do we then say that the Septuagint is inspired? If indeed we have all of these quotes that come out of the Septuagint and find their way into the epistles and into the Gospels, is then the Septuagint inspired? 
Well, we would readily say no. We recognize that in the Septuagint is also the Apocrypha, which we would not agree to. There are many things within the, in the context of the Septuagint, and we would say it's not a part of the canon of Scripture. It's not inspired. So you have to wrestle with that. And here's, here was my conclusion, and, and I, I really appreciate it. I don't know if any of you know Dr. Larry Dixon. Do you know Dr. Larry Dixon? Have you ever heard him preach or hear him teach? He's a, he's a good scholar, and I really have enjoyed him. Well, I was at a Zoom conference with him, and, and the time came for asking questions, and I asked him that very question. I said, uh, I'm just curious as to how you respond to this, and I asked him that about the Septuagint, whether it was inspired since we know that there are portions of it that aren't, and he answered in the exact way that I had been answering. And I said, oh boy, you're good. <laughs> but the response is this. We would not say that the entire Septuagint is inspired, but when the Spirit of God inspired the apostles to pen those words, they became inspired in the inspired text. And now those portions are indeed considered to be the inspired Word of God. The other ones? Well, we'd say some of them may, some of them may not, but those are without question part of the inspired text of God because they are now found in the New Testament and they are found to be breathed by God into the text that we have. Okay, so we're going to end there this morning. Time has gone by way too rapidly. And again, I'll, I'll say like I've always said here, the clock is always the friend of the listener and the, and the enemy of the speaker. <laughs> Our speaker this morning, Ken Hardesty, and his wife, Joyce, commended by both Brantford and Hiawasa, been in the Lord's work for a number of years, and were in the Philippines for a number of years, but they've been back stateside for a long time. We've enjoyed the time of teaching when they've been able to come down and visit, so we'll turn the remainder of our meeting over this morning to our brother Ken. Well, thank you. Turn with me back again to um, our portion in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to continue now where we left off after the introduction. We're not going to go back and redo any more of the introduction. I think that was sufficient to cover what we're what our goals are for these next uh, sessions, and so we trust that the Lord will bless as we read His Word now. We're going to read verses 1 through 16 for this session. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. And let's pause once again to ask the Lord's help. Father, we do recognize that this is your word, and we recognize that you have breathed this and it is in our hands now. And we can read and learn of you and learn of the things that you desire from us, your children. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit would guide us, direct our thinking, direct our reception, that all things might be done to the praise and honor and glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, now in these first two verses... We get what I told you before was two illusions that go back to the Old Testament. They're two very clear illusions. Now, if you're not careful, you might miss them. One is quite obvious, and that is when he talks about those who were scattered in the diaspora, those who were scattered in a dispersion. Quickly, our mind would go back to the Old Testament, wouldn't it? And we would remember those times when Tiglath-Pileser came down upon the ten tribes of Israel in the northern kingdom and took them captive away into Assyria. And then they were captive and spread out through the, uh, through the Assyrian Empire, spread out from there even to other parts of the world. And in fact, they never came back and to establish those ten tribes back in the land even though some of them have come back and wandered back. And it becomes, they, they've often been called now, those northern tribes, the ten lost tribes. God knows where they are. God knows where they are. And you know that from, even James speaks of the twelve tribes that were scattered abroad. He knows where they are. God does. You remember in the book of Revelation that it talks about choosing from the twelve tribes, 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. And we know that there are variations in the, in the tribal listings there. But, but there's a recognition that even though these ones were scattered abroad, the promises of God to Israel remain yea and amen. And He will fulfill His promises to all of those people who He calls His own of the people of the tribes of Israel. And we know the promises that are coming there. We don't want to tend, spend time uh, looking at those. We remember another dispersion under the time of 
of Nebuchadnezzar and the ones following him where the southern tribes were taken into captivity. And they were taken into captivity to Babylon. And for 70 years they were there. And then they came back. Some of them came back. Not all of them came back. But some of them came back into the land again. But they remember back the scattering, the dispersion. And there were other dispersions as well. This one, being referenced here in Peter is likely a reference to a dispersion that took place under Claudius, the emperor Claudius, when by force he sent people out of the land into different areas of the empire in order to populate different areas of the empire. And by force they were sent out and brought into this land. Now there are other ways you can kind of Look at this. You can spiritualize it a bit. And I'm not a big fan of spiritualizing things. But you can spiritualize this a a bit and say, this may even speak to us in the sense that we are those who are scattered throughout this entire world. Those who are His that are scattered throughout the entire world. Yet God knows those who are His. But certainly this, this was a reference back to those Old Testament scatterings. Now, who is it that he's speaking of here? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, elect. Now, there's something interesting that you need to notice here. That there is not a verb in this whole thing until you get to the very end. In the very end, the first time you find a verb in this whole, this whole sentence doesn't come till grace to you be multiplied. Multiplied is the first verb that you're going to find in this whole section. To be multiplied, to be increased, to be lavished. And his prayer is, and it's interesting that it's in a, it's in the, um, it's in a form, I don't need to go into what the forms are, but it's in a form that hides the idea of something that is desired. It's the form that is used in prayer. Something that is desired. And Peter is desiring for these that have been scattered abroad to these who are in these locations that the grace of God and the peace of God be lavished upon them. That they may see and experience the grace of God lavished upon them. We recognize as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, long-standing believers who have known Him for many, many years, that we were saved by that matchless grace. We also have come to realize that we are being delivered day by day by that same grace. And that we must be looking to the grace of God day by day in our lives just to overcome the pitfalls of this life. And He, by His Spirit, will give you grace to overcome. Lavished is what He wanted them to be lavished with. But that's not the point I want to make. I always get these little sidetracks and they always cost me time. To the pilgrims of the dispersion. Now, something you need to notice is that they are, the noun here is the scattered. Scattered. Then there are two adjectives that describe that noun. The adjectives that describe that noun are pilgrims, at least in my New King James, it's pilgrims. Yours may say sojourner. It may be aliens. It may be temporary residents, depending on, on the translation that you use. But it is an It is an adjective that is describing the scattered. 
Elect, that you find later on, is also an adjective that goes back to describe these sojourners. So you have, in essence, these individuals who are the scattered ones. They are aliens sojourning in a land that is not their own. That's how they're described. And they are described, these scattered ones, as elect scattered ones. So you have two adjectives that are describing these scattered ones. They are sojourners, aliens, temporary residents in a land that is not their own. And they are chosen ones. I know what it's like to live as an alien in a strange land. We were in the Philippines from 1987 and we left the Philippines in 2015 for our last time. I know what it's like to be in a land where the culture is not your own, where the languages spoken around you, and there are 120 plus languages in the Philippines that are actual languages and then dialects that come off of those languages. So there's a multitude of languages to be in a land where there are different languages all being spoken all around you, where the culture is so very different than the culture you're used to. You tend to gravitate from time to time to those of like culture in order that you might have fellowship with people of like culture. Even, even when you go and you're a part of the church and you're, you're working to see the church established and, and working to see the, the saints built up, there were always those times when the missionary community in Manila would begin to get together once a month to break bread and to share and to pray for each other's works. And those times were times where you felt like you were back among your own culture and your own people. It's, and it's a sense of feeling, isn't it, Don? You've, you've, been over, you've been overseas in the Philippines and spent those years there. But it's the idea of the fellowship. You could go over to, to the Brooks's and spend time with the fellowship of the saints at the Brooks's home. And it made a lasting impression. But to be an alien and to be a stranger is uncomfortable and it's difficult. I mean, I, knew the, I learned the languages. Not all 120 of them, obviously. But I learned... I learned Tagalog and I learned Ilocano and I, you know, so there were languages that I could communicate in and that made you feel a little bit more accepted. But you were always outside. I didn't look like a Filipino. I stood above the Filipinos. But the, the greatest compliment I think I ever got from all the years spent there was a, a man called Winnie Mata. And I think I shared this with you once before because it's always been so special to me. When he was introducing me one time to speak, and I did all my ministry in Tagalog and whatever, and when he, when he was introducing me to speak, he said, our, and this was a group that we weren't familiar with, it was at a conference, so he got up and he was introducing me. He said, I'll translate it. He said, uh, this is Kuya Ken, that's his big brother Ken. He is an American, he comes from he comes from, the, from uh, the States, and he's been here for X number of years. His, his uh, language is now Tagalog, and he may look American on the outside, but he's a Filipino at heart. And that was a tremendous compliment. So why do I say all that? Because these people 
who were aliens in this land, they weren't there by choice. I had the choice. Joyce and I could have left at any time. We made, the Lord may not have been pleased if we did at any time without His direction, but we, we were free to leave whenever we, ever we wanted to. All we had to do was get our papers and we could leave. These people were not allowed to. They were impressed into this area where they had to dwell in a culture that was not their own, in languages all around them that were not their own, and they had the community of the synagogue where they could feel at home. And then the gospel came. And the gospel came into the lives of these men and women. And now they had a community of believers that could encourage him and strengthen them through their time of their temporary residence away. This church, the church, this local expression of that church is our oasis in a world that is not our own. This meeting with fellow believers is our sanctuary, if I can use that term, because we are not of this world. And we, we see all the things of the world. We struggle with all the things of the world. We face all the hardships of this world. But we are not of this world. We are not of this world. And our hearts long for somewhere else. And that's why we long for the communion, communion of one another of like minds who know and love the same Lord that we know and love. And that gives us hope for the next week. That gives us hope for the next few days. It encourages us to go on because we know the same Lord. So these were scattered ones who were sojourners. These were scattered ones who were elect scattered ones. Now you can get to that portion and you can say to yourself, okay, they were scattered ones and they were elect scattered ones. So now where do you place the elect scattered? Is the elect referring to the idea that they were chosen to be scattered ones? Or is the elect there referring to the salvation which they have as those who have been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world? Now, if you study this through, you will find that almost universal agreement that this is referring to their salvation. That these were those who were chosen of God to be His whom He now placed in this area. You know, remember this area too was one of those areas. So this was... Here we go, another rabbit trail. This was another area. This was the area where Paul wanted to go into, remember? Before the Macedonian call. He tried to get up in this area, and the Spirit of God forbade him. And he tried again, the Spirit of God forbade him. And then he got that Macedonian call. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And he immediately goes to Macedonia. And these places were the places he was trying to get to. And it was as if the Lord was saying, Paul, don't you worry about that area. I got it covered. Don't you worry about that area. I got my plan. The gospel is going to go to them, but it's not going to go to them through you. I have someone else. 
And who it was, we don't know. Whether they went there as those who were already saved and already Christian, or they went there as Jews who were part of this dispersion, and then there came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, and had their lives transformed and renewed, and now Peter was writing to them to encourage them and build them up in the church there. We simply don't know. And if you know, you can tell me, because I'd be very happy to hear that later on. So here they are. They are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, we hear a lot about that. And I'm not going to go into any depths on this. We studied this a few years ago here. I have been saying this for a number of years, and you can agree with me or disagree with me, and that's fine. I think there are things in the foreknowledge of God that we simply do not understand. We are talking about an omniscient God. A God who knows all things. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows all things past, all things present, all things future. And presence is one of those interesting things, isn't it? Because present really is a, is a momentary fleeting thing. Because now is the present. Now I'm in the, past. Now I'm in the future. Now I'm in the future. Now I'm in the future. The present is only a moment in time. And everything is moving forward. God knows. God knows everything that happened, everything that will happen, ordained things to be, and he knows that middle knowledge, everything that could have happened but did not happen. The God who knows all things with absolute perfection, without having to think about it or reason it through, he knows all things. And foreknowledge is a part of of that omniscience that he knows. How does that all work? Don't ask me, because I don't know. I have learned this over the years, and you can, again, agree with me or disagree with me. I have become what, is what I call a compatibilist. Now, what do I mean by compatibilist? I probably shared this with you before. A compatibilist is one who knows and believes in the sovereignty of God, and I know that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. I know that He chose me, but I also know that there was a point in time when I was stirred by the Spirit of God, and I repented of my sin and received Christ as my Savior, and I was saved. I reached out by faith. And believed. And I know both of those things are absolutely true because I know the scripture teaches both. Can I put them together and understand them? I cannot. I cannot. I've talked with a lot of people who think they have, but I cannot. Foreknowledge is not, and I, I probably shouldn't even say this, but I will. It's not foreordination. That's not what the word means. That's not what the word means. That's what some have 
made it mean, and even if you look it up in the dictionary, sometimes it has that there, but that's not what the word means. God knows in his omniscience how that all works out. I don't know, but this I know, that I am saved and that forever because I place my faith and trust in the Savior. Amen. So let's move ahead. You'll notice in, the, in these verses, this introductory verses, that he mentions each one of the Godhead separately in their work and ministry within the work of salvation. And you'll notice now, first it was that uh, you were elect or chosen scattered ones. He's speaking to those, and we can refer to that to ourselves as well. According to the foreknowledge of the Father... And then he goes on and he says this. In sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood. Now there's two, I hate to get so technical, but sometimes it helps you understand. There's two prepositions that are used here. Both of them are primary prepositions. One is N, one is ice. N has the idea of into a, a sort of like a fixed position. You're, you are going into a fixed position. It's the same, it's the same uh, preposition that's used when it talks about you are in Christ. You are in this fixed position of being in Christ. You are in the heavenlies. You are in this fixed position of being in Him, in the heavenlies. It is what we have, a, a position is what this preposition is pointing to. Ice, on the other hand, is, is kind of a, a moving thing, if you will. And you scholars can always correct me later. But it's a moving thing. And it's saying, in essence, it's going towards something. To or toward something. So now he says this. Keeping those two things in mind. The first preposition he uses here is N. It is in sanctification. And the sanctification is a noun. It is not a verb. It is a, it is a noun. You are in as a fixed position, sanctification. The moment you came to know Christ as your Savior, the moment you, were, you, you came to believe and have faith in Him, you were saved and you were put by the Spirit of God into a position of sanctification. You are the sanctified ones. It's the same word, same root word of, of holy, right? The hagios, it's the same word. You are those who have been set apart. And that is the position you have. And we recognize that sanctification has three, those three tenses of it. We have the position of sanctification in that we have, a, we have been saved and we have been set apart by the Spirit of God and we are being set apart by the Spirit of God. And one day we will be ultimately set apart by the Spirit of God and we'll, we'll go to be with Him in glory. This is speaking of that one fixed position that we have. It's kind of like being holy, being saints. It is a fixed position that we possess. All of us in this room who know Christ as our Savior have been sanctified by the blood of Christ. Then he goes on and he says, you're sanctified by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit for obedience and sprinkling. Now here we get the word ice. This preposition, ice, it's a primary preposition. It has this idea. Now, you're moving toward 
toward obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. This is what takes us back now to the Old Testament portion from which this comes, from which this allusion comes. And as we go back to the Old Testament portion, I hope that we can see when we're there why it is that Peter used this allusion from the Old Testament to speak to these scattered ones. That's what we're trying to do. How accurately and how well we'll do it, time will tell. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 24. And this is where we find this illusion. At least most scholars would say that. Not that I am a scholar by any means, but this, that's what most scholars would say. It alludes back to this portion. Some would say it, it alludes to the, the red heifer. I don't think it quite fits as well. I mean, you can certainly make some, some great messages out of that, and there's no issue with that. But uh, this is where it comes from. Now, I want to read you some portions out of Exodus 24. Listen, as I, I may not read every single word, but listen as we go through this. Now, he said to Moses, now you'll remember what brings us to this point. What has brought us to this point is that Moses had been called up to Mount Sinai. We're past the time when, when the mountains had trembled and the, the cloud came down and Moses ascended up into, the, into Sinai. We see this in the earlier chapters. And he receives instruction from the Lord. And we'll, we're going to go back to that in just a moment. He gets the instructions from the Lord. Then he comes back, he gets the Ten Commandments as well. Then he gets all that case law that follows after that. And all that case law, is, and you read through those, those chapters that precede these chapters and just underline how many times, at least in the King James and the New King James Bible, you can underline, shall not, shall, shall not, shall, shall, shall not, shall. He goes through and he, de- he delineates for them, these are the things you shall do, these are the things you shall not do. And he brings down the judgments. And by judgments, I don't mean wrath or that kind of judgment. I mean, he brings down the principles, the judgments that they are to follow. This is what you're to do. This is what you're not to do. This you shall do. This you shall not do. And he goes on and on and on and on for chapter after chapter to show us that. And now we come to this chapter. And he says to Moses, come up to the Lord. You can stop right there. That is such a beautiful and profound statement, isn't it? Has the Lord called you the same way? Come up. Come up. Come aside. Rest a while. When was the last time you heard the voice of the Lord in that sense saying, come aside? You've been so busy and so wrapped up with anything. I just want some time with you. Put it aside for a while. And come up. Come up. Now I am spiritualizing, aren't I? He says, come up to the Lord. You, and now notice this, this is important. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Come. Come up to the mountain. Come up where I am, and you shall worship from afar. 
you will see things and you will experience things and you will worship from afar. And then it goes on. Moses shall alone come near the Lord. They shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words that the Lord, all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. Now that word goes back now to what we have just seen in all the other chapters. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. These are the judgments of the Lord. These are the things you are to be following. These are the things you are to be obedient to. And the response of the people is, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And they said that once before. Back in chapter 19, they said it once before. All that the Lord said, we will do. They'll say it again later on in this chapter when he writes all these things down. And he reads all these things to them again. And they say, all that the Lord has said, we will do. How did they do? Not too well. Not too well. Within a few chapters, they'll be making a golden calf. And worshiping and saying, this is the God that brought us out of Israel, out of Egypt. This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. But I suppose I could pose the same question to us. Have you read the New Testament? Have you seen the things that the Lord desires from us? Have we not said all that the Lord has said we will do? Maybe you didn't form it in those words, but guess what? You have a Savior who is your Lord. He is your Lord. Don't call me Lord, Lord, and then not do the things I tell you. So you come down to that same question to you and I. What things do we pick and choose to obey? I like this one. I don't like that one so much. I'll do this one. I'll kind of do this one in pretense, but I won't. Are we able to say before the Lord, as these people did, all that the Lord has said we will do? Oh, man. I think sometimes, I think sometimes we, we lie a lot in our hymnology. And, and I don't mean that in a very negative way, because I understand the, the hymn writer's intent. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. And you go home and you do what you want to do. I mean, that's true, isn't it? So it's very easy for us to look back at the people of Israel and say, look what miserable failures they were. And all we have to do is look at our own lives and say, oh, Lord, without your spirit, without the help of your spirit in my life, without the work that you've done so faithfully to me over the many, many years. There go I. He has been faithful to you, hasn't he? He's been faithful to you. You look back over the course of your life where you have stumbled and fallen, where you have failed miserably, and the Lord and his promise that he would never leave you and he would never forsake you remains still today. And we can say with our hearts, Lord, it is our desire to follow you. Because we know that the Spirit of God's desire and the work of the Spirit of God is to conform us into the image of His Son.
so that he will populate the new heaven and the new earth one day with people that are like his son. They look like his son. They act like his son. And they look like him in their actions. They, they are like his son. Hey, we didn't get very far there either. Let's move on. All that they said. So Moses wrote all the words and they said the same thing again. All that he said we will do. After, now, after, in verse 5, he sent the young men and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood, put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord said we will do. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. He took the blood now of these oxen that were shed, sprinkled it or poured it on the, on the altar that he had built with these 12 pillars representing each one of the tribes of Israel who are now all attesting to the reality of what was happening. And the blood was shed. The blood was put on the altar. For, they laid their hands on it, of course, and, and all that process. But it was shed, and, and when it was put on the altar, that was where the acceptance takes place. And now they promised that they would do, and they entered into this covenant, and they are sprinkled with the blood. Covenants are serious things. They really are. Covenants carry serious consequences. And we won't go there. The sprinkling of the blood, which set them apart to the obedience that they promised. They promised obedience. The sprinkling of the blood was a covenant with them that they would do what they said they would do. And they didn't. And they failed. And we know the results of it. They didn't and they failed. There were peace offerings that were made. And the interesting thing of the peace offerings here, in my feeble mind, we understand the peace offerings as we go forward. We understand them more and more. They were made before the time when actually the, the, the sacrifices were codified, when they were put out and laid out all the five different sacrifices and what they were to be used for and how they were to be used. But this peace offering was that one offering, one of the offerings that was made when you fulfilled a vow for thanksgiving and it was a free will offering. So after the obligatory offerings of the burnt sacrifices, which went, and these were, those were also free will in some sense, but they, they were offered up fully and completely unto God. Man had no part in that. They laid their hands on, their sins were laid there in a sense, they were put on the altar, they were wholly consumed unto God. The peace offering, you'll remember, that the priest had a part of it. They would take the breast off after it was killed, and they would take that breast and they would wave it before the Lord as a wave offering. They would take the thigh. They would do a heave offering to the Lord. And the heave offering would be the idea as this is yours, God. It all belongs to you. And you have given it to us. And the priest, Aaron and his sons, could now partake of that and eat of it in signifying fellowship with the God of the sacrifice. The same with the wave offering. 
It was given up to God and brought back, given up to God and brought back, and it was for the others of the, of the priests that they could eat it, have fellowship with God. Did you see what happened later in this chapter? And I know my time is getting away from me, but you'll be so kind and gracious and Christ-like and let me go on for just a little bit more. Look at what happens now. They made this peace offering. Now they could have, in a sense, fellowship with God. And it says, Moses, verse 9, Moses went up also Aaron, Nadab, Bihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. Isn't that a profound statement? These, all of them, saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work. of looked like sapphire stone. That is a profound statement. They saw him. What did they see? His glory? The fire on the mount? What was it they saw? It doesn't tell us. We remember, don't we, if you go on to chapter 33, I think it is, in the... Studious brethren will correct me, I'm sure, if I'm wrong. But I think chapter 33 is where it says that Moses spoke to God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And yet, when you come to the next chapter, it says, Moses said to the Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord said, no one can see my face and live. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by you. And as he passed by, he removed his hand in all this beautiful imagery. And he saw the back of God as it moved away in the glory of God. For no man shall see my face and live. So we take those two things and we say, well, what does it mean then in chapter 33 when it says you saw him face to face as a brother? That is a picture of the intimacy of God. It's not a literal thing. It's a picture of the intimacy that Moses had with God. It is the intimacy that you and I experience with Christ. It is the intimacy of that fellowship that we enjoy with our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you enjoy that? Do you enjoy that fellowship you have with Him? Do you speak with Him as you're speaking to God, but yet one who is personal? He is the transcendent God above all things, but yet He is personal. And He knows you. And He loves you. And He loves the time spent with Him. As you love the time you spend with Him. And there is fellowship with the living God. And we speak to Him. We speak to Him as a friend. If we can use that kind of language. Do you enjoy having that fellowship with God? Do you enjoy having that access to Him? It is the sweetest thing in our lives. It is the sweetest thing in our lives to have fellowship with Him through His Word and in prayer. And then it goes down a little bit further in verse 11. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, they did not, He did not lay His hand. He did not pour judgment. He did not uh, put them to death. He did not lay His hand on them. So they saw God and they ate and they drank. They had fellowship in them by means of the peace offering. They had fellowship with Him, the God of Israel. Amazing! 
Now, this is the context that Peter is thinking of. This is the context that he's thinking of. When he says that these scattered ones, these scattered elect ones, they were scattered and they were those who were elect according to the foreknowledge of God. They were in this position of sanctification where God had placed them. And they were toward this obedience that the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice had provided for them so that they can now be those who are obedient ones. Does that make sense? You can nod your head if you think it makes sense. If you, if you don't think it makes sense, don't nod your head and I'll have a sense of who knows and who understands what I'm trying to say here. The obedience that they promised, the blood was sprinkled on them because they promised an obedience. We have, in our salvation, acknowledged Him as Lord. And He is our Lord. And we do, we ought to be doing the things that He says. And the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ is that which has cleansed us from all our sin and continues to give us access into the presence of God and to the Spirit of God which dwells within us and allows us and gives us the power to obey. To obey. You ever tried to obey without depending on the Spirit of God to obey? We don't do so good. When we try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and say, I'm just going to do it better today. I can do it better today. I know I, I can do it better today. And you end up doing it just the same as you did the day before. But the Spirit of God, in obedience to, this, to God and to the finished work of Christ, it is possible for us to live lives that are honoring to Him. Father, we thank You for this short time in Your Word. And we pray that You'd use it for Your glory and for Your honor to speak to our hearts, to help us to grasp those things which Peter perhaps said in his mind as he penned those words to these people in just these opening verses. Father, we ask Your blessing, Your encouragement for Your people here. For we ask it in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.